0: This is The One Thing Podcast where we teach you the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. My name's Jeff Woods, I'm the Vice President here at The One Thing Team. Imagine acquiring a habit that was so powerful that it was worth paying $100 million to acquire it. What habit could be so powerful that it would be worth investing that much? Over the next two episodes, you are going to hear a two-part interview with someone who quite literally paid that tuition. Over $100 million he lost and what he learned from it and the habits that he built that not only allowed him to make that money back, but make it back in spades and now turn around and be in a position to travel around the world teaching anywhere from 30 to 40,000 people how they can acquire this one habit that would make everything else in their business life easier or unnecessary. I'm particularly excited about this conversation because the person you're going to meet today is a friend of Gary Keller's. He is someone I have read his brand new book, The Road Less Stupid. I have been studying it. I have been going on a 66-day challenge to making this one habit a power habit that sticks. And we know that you will want to get a copy of his book, The Road Less Stupid. And what we're going to ask is we're going to turn this into a little contest. If you like what you hear in this episode in part one or in part two, and you choose to do one of two things, you leave, a review on your podcast player of choice specifically referencing this episode and the one thing that you are going to do based on it or share this episode on your social media with the hashtag the one thing we are going to be selecting our three favorites by the end of this month and we will be sending out a free signed copy of the book the road less stupid with that let's get into this episode with author keith cunningham Welcome to this episode of the One Thing Podcast. I am very excited to record the conversation that we're having here today with this gentleman who uh, there are a few people that when I hear speak, there are just so many writer downers and so much wisdom that I really focus, I'm very purposeful about paying attention And you are one of those people. Um, You're someone who has enjoyed an extraordinary amount of success in the business and financial world. You have also enjoyed, or if enjoyed is even the right word, extraordinary levels of setback more than most of us could ever possibly imagine and built your way back out of it. And at the heart of it is, I love what you said when you said, um, making money is one thing, but keeping it is an entirely different thing. Uh, And he came out with his book, The Red Less Stupid, which I have been studying intensely for the last four months or so, because I believe the the quality of the questions we ask ourselves is a major determiner of what our future looks like. So with that, welcome, Keith Cunningham. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So for the people who do not know who you are, give us a a high-level
2: overview of what your journey has looked like up until this point. So... Uh, Thank you, first of all, for having me. And I've been a fan and admirer of Gary Keller for a number of years and consider him a very close and dear friend. And so anytime I have an opportunity to support anything that he touches, it's always an honor and a privilege. So thank you. Yes. I am uh, at, at my core a business man. I have been involved in business, uh, started my first business like a lot of people did at kind of a young age. I was 11 or 12 years old and started an egg business in Houston, Texas, delivering eggs to my neighbors. And, you know, like a lot of kids had paper routes and and babysitting and mowing grass. And, uh, you know, what I found out is, is that I, I really enjoyed business and I I probably enjoy it more when I'm successful than when I'm not, (laughs) although having said that, some of my biggest lessons, in fact, I would say all of my biggest lessons have happened as a result of uh, mistakes and something stupid that I did, uh, as opposed to something smart or something where I got lucky. I love what Bill Gates said. Bill Gates said, The problem with success is that it lulls smart people into believing they know what they're doing. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I I have enjoyed some probably undeserved success uh, and suffered uh, some catastrophic losses and have rebuilt. And really, the book, The Road Less Stupid, is based on a number of the lessons and a number of the Principles that unfortunately I had to learn the hard way. Mm -hmm. I started out in cable television with a couple of mentors uh, here in Austin, Texas. Mm -hmm. We sold that company and started another company. And I'm more from cable television and raising money and doing deals in that industry into real estate, which was a really good idea until it wasn't, uh, which is what's true with most ideas. They're good ideas until they're not. Um, and so as a result of those bad ideas that it, it, one of my favorite sayings is all my problems started out as a good idea. And if, you know, if, if you look at your problems, chances are whatever problems you're dealing with right now started out as a good idea. I don't know anybody that gets up in the morning and says, oh, good. Today's the day that I'm going to shoot my foot off today's the day that I'm going to permanently uh, destroy some part of my life. And so, you know, we all all have these good ideas. And one of my good ideas was investing in real estate in the 80s, which uh, ultimately turned into a disaster because of some arrogance and some greed and some ego and hubris. And some of the economy shifted and I wasn't ready. Uh, And so I spent a a pretty long period of time uh, rebuilding, my, not only myself but also uh, my business, and became a turnaround guy uh, for businesses that were in trouble. And and I've so I've started and built and financed and and bought, and sold businesses almost continuously for the last forty six or forty seven years, ever since I got out of school. So. I, today, I own a small collection of businesses that are mostly local, and I spend the majority of my time teaching. Hmm. I made a distinction a few years ago that there's a significant difference between success and fulfillment. And success to me is getting what you want, and fulfillment is giving what you got. And so I have been fortunate in that I have the success that I wanted. And this last 10 or 15 years of my life has been more about fulfillment and how can I teach other people some of the lessons that I had to learn the hard way mm-hmm. uh, so that they don't have to learn them the same way I did. Yeah. And so today, I'm a teacher. I'm a author. Uh, I I do a, spend a lot of time thinking. And um, trying to avoid doing something stupid.
0: That's right. For those of you who have read Mm. The One Thing or listened to The One Thing podcast for a period of time, know that I've mentioned the F.M. Alexander quote that people don't decide their futures, they decide their habits, and their habits decide their futures. And since I've been given the opportunity to actually represent the brand, I'm constantly forming that next habit, which I remember looking at Gary Keller and asking what habits did Gary form that made Gary, Gary? And it all came down to purposeful time for thinking, asking great questions. And then I come across the road less stupid, where here you are, someone who has amassed more wealth than most people can ever imagine, have been more more in the hole than most people could ever imagine surviving through, and you've built your way all the way back, and at the heart of it, thinking and asking great questions. Thinking time. Where did this come from for you originally?
2: This is such a great story. I was doing deals in the nineteen early 1980s in cable television, and we were buying a cable television system, and we didn't have the money, the financing. And so one of my jobs was to work with Wall Street and raise money. And I stumbled across a, an investment bank in New York uh, by the name of Drexel Burnham. Mm-hmm. And The guy at Drexel Burnham who was very, very famous at the time—he's still well known—is a guy named Mike Milken, and Mr. Milken uh, was the originator of a concept called junk bonds. So I, I, which was a a financing, uh, was a good idea until it wasn't. Well, (laughs) that's right. Well, and junk bonds are still around, but but that that one definitely went through the cycle. Uh, but it, that's right. It was a good idea until it wasn't. And so I, I negotiated the deal with our investment banker. Who it was? It was a lot of money. It was you know a hundred and something million dollars of financing that that he was. They were going to provide. And I was told uh, a week before the closing that there was uh, one final hurdle that we had to navigate in order to get to the closing table. And the final hurdle was a meeting with Mr. Milken, which I was very excited about because Mr. Milken is very well known and had a great reputation. And he was kind of the godfather of Wall Street. So I asked my investment banker, well, what's going to happen at this meeting that I'm I'm about to have? And my investment banker said, well, you're going to fly to LA, which is where Mr. Milken is headquartered. And we'll pick you up uh, at the airport, drive you to our building. It's a 17-story building. And on the 13th floor, it's filled with conference rooms. Just one conference room after another. And your meeting is going to start at 10 o'clock on Tuesday. And you're going to give us the pitch for about an hour and a half. In the conference room, there's going to be a conference table with seven chairs, five for our people, one for you. And there'll be an empty chair right next to you. And my investment bankers, whose name was Leon, Leon said, uh, at some point during that hour and a half meeting on Tuesday, while you're giving the pitch, the door to the conference room is gonna open and in is gonna walk Mr. Milken. And he's gonna sit down next to you. And Leon said, whatever you do, don't talk to him. Don't interrupt your pitch, just keep going and you'll have an opportunity to meet him and talk to him later. And Leon said, what we want is Mr. Milken to stay about 10 to 12 minutes. If he stays longer than 15 minutes, this deal is in trouble because he's heard something he doesn't like. But if he only stays 10 or 15 minutes, then we're golden. But when he leaves, don't talk to him. You just keep going. And I said, okay, I get it. So I flew to LA, they picked me up, went to the building, 13th floor, conference rooms everywhere. 10 o'clock in the morning, they brought me in. There's five of their people, me, empty chair, I start the pitch. I'm talking about the deal and how we're going to make money and what the risks are and the management team, what our marketing is going to be, everything about the deal, how much money we're all going to make. I'm into the pitch about 25 or 30 minutes. I hear the conference room door open. I hear it close. I I see the chair next to me pull out and this guy sits next to me and I glance over it's Mr. Milken and he gets out his little day timer and he's got a pen and he starts taking notes and he's listening and about 12 or 15 minutes into it, I see him push back from the table. He takes off his glasses. He closes up his little day timer and right then the door to the conference room, there was a knock at the door and it opened and Nobody told me that was going to happen, and so I stopped. I stopped the pitch, and Mr. Milken looked at me, and I looked at him, and Mr. Milken said, give me one second. He turned and looked at the guy at the door, and he said to the guy at the door, what is it? And the guy said, we need a decision on the takeover of Gulf oil. Mr. Milken put back on his glasses, opened back up his little daytimer. This is before blueberries and crackberries and all that kind of stuff. And he opened up his little paper daytimer and he turned the page and he went, no. And he turned the page and he went, ah, there it is. And he took his pen and he made a little note in his notebook and he looked at the guy at the door and said, the next time I'm scheduled to think is between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m. on Thursday morning you'll have an answer at 5 a.m. I heard that and I looked at him and I said out loud, you must be kidding me. You schedule time to think. I had never been exposed to that concept. 3 a.m. to 5 a.m. is a little excessive, but scheduling time to think. There's a book that you have in your library. I know I have it in mine. I'm willing to bet the majority of the people that are listening and watching this have either heard of it. They own the book, and a few of them have actually read it. This book is 80 years old. It's sold 100 million copies. It's an international bestseller. It is considered to be the Bible of business, and the book is entitled Think and Grow Rich." The name of the book is not use your emotions, your gut, and your glands and grow rich. The name of the book is not dim the lights, hold hands, visualize something, and a sack full of money is going to fall on your head and you'll be rich. The name of the book is think. Mm -hmm. And yet most people, including me, have never set aside time on their calendar to actually sit and do the heavy lifting of thinking. Most of us have imagined, I know I have, have imagined or believed that the key to being productive is getting busy. Mm -hmm. But in reality, the key to being productive is the key to being successful, in my experience, is to figure out the priorities, what's most important, Uh, plan my day before it starts, manage my calendar so that I'm allocating the time to the appropriate things, hopefully the things that are most important that will actually move the needle, and all of that is set in motion as a result of thinking. So I heard that for the first time in 1982, and it's a lesson I don't know about you, but I, I've learned things and then forgotten to use them. That happened to be mm-hmm. one of the things I was really impressed with that I forgot to use for a few years, and it cost me a lot of money because I, I was busy taking action instead of being thoughtful about which direction I'm going. One of the biggest mistakes that I've made and I see other people make all the time is that I have run the wrong direction enthusiastically. And few things are worse, right, than than heading someplace that you have no business going that direction. And and one of the ways to sort that out, I think, is with this idea of thinking and thinking time. Mm. You hear of this concept
0: of thinking and thinking time. What did that lead to? Because I know it's really become, it became a habit to the point where it became a ritual. What does that look like for you today?
2: So, as I it's a great question. As I said, I've learned things that I didn't use right away. This is one of those things where I, when I heard it, I went, "Oh, that is a key idea." And then I forgot to use it for several years and as a result, took some risk and and made some financial bets that I shouldn't have made and it wound up costing me a lot of money, uh which I'm sure you're going to talk about later at some point, but it was out of that. In fact, I'll just tell this this story about this now. Give, I, I give lost people, a, give people a size of scale, because you know it, 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 well, it was a lot. I lost. I, I made a uh, hundred million dollars, and I lost it in a period of about three and a half years. I lost all of it. I was broke. I went from zero when I got out of school, way up, and I let some emotions and some Hubris and some greed and some arrogance slip in. And I, I stopped assessing. I had the tool belt. I just stopped using it. You know, it doesn't do any good to have all the tools and then not use them. Mm-hmm. And I started managing my business with my glands instead of my intellect. Bottom line business is an intellectual sport. Money and finance and business do not respond well. Uh, to emotions. I mean, you take a look at you, if you're listening to this. Take a look at the any losses that you've had: financial mistakes, business mistakes, investment mistakes. And more often than not, it's obvious. Twenty twenty hindsight. Looking back on it, you go, Phew, "Well, that was obvious." I mean, yeah, why didn't I see that? Well, it's because we we don't check our assumptions or. We don't think about second-order consequences. We don't ask the hard questions. We're way too optimistic in our in our business uh, dealing. And I'm not opposed to optimism. I just think irrational exuberance is is crazy. So I I made a ton. I lost it. Remade it. And I was giving an interview about ten or eight or ten years ago in Ireland. And I was doing a speech to a bunch of business owners in Ireland uh, the next day. And my promoter, the guy who had brought me to Ireland, asked me if I'd be willing to go on a radio program live the day before the event that I was going to be speaking at and kind of do a little PR promotion kind of thing. And so I agreed to do it. The radio personality, it was a live interview, and the radio personality, when they brought me into the studio, they were playing a commercial, and so the radio personality and I could talk without being heard by the audience, and the radio personality said to me while the commercial was playing, said, "Uh, you know, I've read about you, I know about you, I've read your background, is there Is there anything you want me to be sure and not talk about? Because I've read a a lot of your stuff and what you do. And I said, yeah, you know what? Don't ask me, how does it feel to lose $100 million? Because I'm going to tell you, it feels horrible. Uh, There's nothing fun about going through the process of losing all your money, and particularly that amount of money. I mean, uh, you have to look at it and say, how could somebody be so stupid to lose that much money in that. Well, it's not that hard. (laughs) It turns out it's kind of easy to do that when you take your eye off the ball. So anyway, I said, don't ask me about how's that feel? So he said, okay, great. So we came back on the air. And the first thing the guy says is, okay, I'm sitting here in the studio with Keith Cunningham, the the man who lost a hundred million dollars. How does it feel to lose a hundred million dollars? Now we're live and I'm wanting to look at this guy and you know punch him in the <laughs> nose or something, and uh, and I, so I had to I had to think about this real quick, and I, I looked at him and I said, "Let me tell you how I view this. I view life like a university, and at university, just like life, there are courses, and every single course has a tuition. So there's." price, a tuition for courses in life, just like a university. I took a course in the university of life and the tuition was hundred million dollars. Now, first of all, not very many people get to take this course. It's very expensive. So I am one of the few who's had an opportunity to take this course. The question is not, how does it feel to have paid that much money for a course? The question is, did I get my money's worth? Did I learn the lesson? Do, am I smarter as a result of having paid that tuition? And the answer is, I'm a I'm $100 million smarter. Mm. as a result of having taken that course. And that's kind of how I view it. I had to turn it around from a loss to, yeah, I did lose a lot of money. But the reality is that's a price I paid. In my book, I've got uh, a chapter called Log of Lessons Learned. Mm. And it's one of my favorite chapters because it was written originally in 1989, right at the time where I'm losing A tremendous amount of money and I sat down with a Big Chief tablet and a pen and I wrote down the question at the top of the page, so what have you learned? Hmm. And there is four or five pages of sentences, one after the other, of lessons that I learned as a result of those mistakes. In the book, you talk about five certain disciplines. as you look
0: back on all the mistakes you made, the road, the stupid road you went down, these core five disciplines that if we can just start to adopt those and choose to make some of them habits, mitigates the majority of our risks moving forward. Changes
2: everything. What are some of the most powerful ones that people should understand? I, look, i think I think one of the most powerful, and we've alluded to some of these already, I think one of the most powerful, Uh, lessons is to check the assumptions that we make. Mm -hmm. Uh, We we tend to tell a story around the decisions that we make. Uh, we, We justify them somehow in our own mind without really testing those assumptions. We let the story become a substitute for facts. We get overly optimistic. We tend to not uh, appropriately analyze risk. There's a reason why successful investors, these are not people who've done it once, but these are people that have done it repeatedly through the years. They have a track record of success. They do something that's very, very different than what the average man or woman does when they invest. The, the pros have three questions that they ask. Every single time before they do an investment, before they make a decision, they ask the most obvious question, what's the upside? You and I are great at that question. That, that's where most of us live. We, we spend the majority of our time describing, here's all the great things that will happen as opposed to, is there anything that could go wrong? That's the second question. What could go wrong? So the first question is all about what's the upside. The second question is, what's the downside? Which helps explain why most entrepreneurs who are trying to raise money have a really hard time talking to a professional investor because the entrepreneur is all about the unlimited upside and the professional investor is all about, oh, wait a at now, here's some things that could go wrong. So getting good at evaluating risk is one of the the core disciplines then the third question and this is the one that only the pros ask mom and pops never ask this question and that is can i live with the downside the three questions are what's the upside what's the downside can i live with the downside and oftentimes we look we we fail as either investors or business people to do an adequate job of either evaluating the risk, which is what could go wrong, or the second-order consequence, if the risk happens, can I live with it? And the reality is, more often than not, as a result of not asking questions two and three, we make a decision that relies on everything going right, which it never does, And so, as a result, we wind up with a loss and it's unfortunate. So, those are the kinds of things that are in the five core disciplines in the road less stupid. I think probably one of the most important ones is finding the unasked question. I think more often than not, one of my biggest saboteurs, and it's the problem with most people, I think is that when we find an answer, we stop looking. Mm. We, We say, well, what should I do next? Or should I do this or not do this? And we make a decision, we find an answer. And as a result, we haven't sat with the question long enough in order to create additional possible answers. The instant you find an answer, then it cuts off any further thinking about other possible alternatives. And so another way to say this, I think on a bumper sticker might be smart people have really good answers. Geniuses have really good questions.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: There's a great story about Albert Einstein who was one smart dude. Albert, in addition to uh, a lot of other things was a professor at Princeton for 20 years. And in his third semester of teaching, Albert's fellow professors came to him and said, Albert, they're on to you. And he said, what do you mean? And the fellow professors, his peers said, Albert, you keep giving the same final exam question three semesters in a row. They figured it out. These kids are smart and they quit studying because they already know what question you're going to ask. You got to mix it up a little bit, dude. You got to have some different questions. Albert said, I'm not gonna do it. I'm gonna keep asking the same question every single semester for as long as I teach at Princeton. And they said, why? And he said, because the answers keep on changing. This is unbelievably important as it relates to business, as it relates to investing, as it relates to our our lives. A great business answer today could be a horrible answer tomorrow. A a horrible answer five years ago could be a terrific answer today. And the reason is because the environment keeps on changing. What's smart today would have been stupid 10 years ago. What's possible today would have been impossible 15 years ago. And the same, the reverse works as well. What's impossible today Might be entirely possible two years from now. The environment keeps on changing, Mm -hmm. which is why I'm not a subscriber to this, uh, in my opinion, incredibly stupid advice of you don't have a business until it can operate without you. Or the advice that uh, you know you have a business when you can leave it for months at a time. And when you get back, it's better than when you left it. That's incredibly stupid advice that the, you look at the wealthiest people on the planet and not one of them are doing that. They're mm. staying engaged. They're staying involved. And the reason is because the environment keeps on changing. And unless we're involved and engaged in our businesses, it's unlikely that we're going to make the shifts or be flexible or adaptable enough in order to accommodate the new environment.
0: you just use two words that are a perfect tie in business and shift. We've got a lot of people who fancy themselves business owners. And truth is they're operators. They're not business owners. They are just self-employed. They're shackled to that thing. How does what's one thing someone can do such that by doing it allows them to move from being an operator in the business
2: to being an owner? It's such a great question. And the way I want to talk about this is with hats. I think there's four ways you can engage in business. You can be the artist, which is all about the passion and the product. And you're in love with your baby. You're, you're the mother of your baby. No mother has ever looked at their baby and gone, oh, my God, this baby is ugly. mothers love their babies, artists love their product. Uh, So you can be an artist, you can be an operator. An operator is a doer. It's all about if something's going to get done, I'm going to have to do it. An owner runs it, but doesn't operate it. Uh, An owner will set priorities or Figure out the obstacles that are in the way that is preventing the business from getting from here to, to there. An owner will make sure that the team is A players and that get the right people doing the right thing at the right time, which is the key to success, by the way. Write this down. The key to success, do the right thing, have the right people doing the right thing at the right time. That's all you got to do. You do those three things, I promise you, you're going to be fine. You get the right people doing the right thing at the right time. Uh, an owner thinks about that. Um, operators don't. Operators are all about changing the oil in the engine or, or changing out the brakes. They're, they're the doers as opposed to the thinkers and, and the people who manage the organization. And then finally, the fourth way to be in business is, is as an investor. So an investor is more concerned about risk and what could go wrong and protecting, an operator is about uh, coaching, uh, uh, owner is about coaching and operator is about doing. Visualize those as hats, not roles, they're hats. There are times in my business where I need to put on the artist hat. I got to do a little bit of artistic creation of some sort and there's times I'll take that hat off the book, a very artistic. I love my baby. I love, mm, I love this. This is, the, this is my baby. I love your baby too. <laughs> <laughs> Either one of us could be blind. <laughs> this is an artistic endeavor. Yeah. That's a, a hat. There are times I need to put that hat, take that hat off and put on another hat which is an operator hat. And the operator hat says, okay, well I can envision this book, but somebody's got to type it. Somebody's got to get whatever's in my brain onto a piece of paper, and let's get this organized in chapters and polish. All that is operator kind of stuff. And then there's an owner hat. That's a whole different hat. And the owner hat says, okay, well how do I get this book how do I get it exposed, get it into the hands of business owners or people that want to be business owners that, so that they can be more successful? And so that's a whole different set of activities. It doesn't mean that I live one place to the exclusion of someplace else. I've got flexibility to maneuver back and forth. What You've asked a very powerful question, uh, Jeff, and that is What's one thing somebody could do? I'm going to give you two. (laughs) One thing you can do to begin building this owner hat is thinking time. Mm. Is setting aside time to actually think about the business. One of my favorite questions to ask. Uh, So I'm going to ask you. The question is this. If your business could talk, what would it say? Mm -hmm. You write that question down and you sit for 30 minutes with the phone turned off, disconnected from the internet, with your door closed, with no interruptions, and you keep staring at that question and you write down on a piece of paper, don't use your computer, write down on a piece of paper all the things that your business would say? That's an extraordinarily powerful question. I think if we would set aside time to think, that's an owner activity. Optics is an owner activity. Getting data and information pulled together in an organized format and being able to look at it and get optics so that you can actually see what's going on. Uh, So you can see where maybe your conversion ratio is slipping a little bit, or the social media that you're currently doing is not resulting in as many opens as it historically has, or the amount of time that somebody is spending on your site is down 15 seconds from where it was two weeks ago. That data gives you optics. Can I share a story on this?
0: Absolutely. So since the time that you and I initially sat down to today, there's been one major change. She's sitting in the room with us. for people who can't see or listen, Kalen, our community manager is here. When I think about my first two and a half years of starting this business, I was acting very entrepreneurially, mm. moving from day to day, relying on my natural abilities. And as I started to build a team, because I run at an extremely fast pace, I expected people to keep up with me. And when things weren't my one thing, they got delegated to everyone else. And as a result, um, there was a reactive culture that was established. Yeah. And I got clarity as Caitlin was coming on board after reading this, that the one thing that I could do that would move me from operator to more owner was thinking time. I've been in the middle of a 66 day challenge. I'm at least 40 days in at this point. It hasn't been consistent days, but I know I have sat down purposefully at least 44 times. Wow! And the one thing I have spent more time on than anything else has been questions around her to the point that I track it. Do I have eight time blocks a month to sit down and proactively ask the questions that I can ask her to teach her how to think so that I don't Set a reactive culture. And it is night and day, night and day in terms of the clarity that I have on where we're going, when we're falling behind as a business, where the focus needs to be, um, my emotions going through the whole thing. It is one thing that has truly made everything else easier or unnecessary. I love that story. And Sometimes I have sat down, like you said, for 30 or 45 minutes, which that's like going to Disneyland for me, sign me up. I can't wait to ask if your business could talk, what would it say? And quite often it's me sitting down for five minutes because I can't always sit down for 45 minutes. I can, however, consistently ask the question and at least get something down. And that single two inch domino knocked over consistently has led to some exponential
2: results. I, I love that story. Candidly, I'm not surprised if you've been doing that kind of work that you're getting those kinds of results. One of the things that, that you made me think about might be the third thing that in somebody that wants to begin the migration. It's a path. It's not a instantaneous beam me up, Scotty. I, t- yesterday, I was an operator. Today, I was an owner it's a hat that I'm taking on and off, but I gotta, I gotta at least have the hat in the wardrobe. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise it'll never get worn. I gotta be conscious about, so the th- one one thing that I mentioned was thinking time. And then I said optics. Yeah. And you just brought in a third piece when you were talking about the people that are supporting you and that is leverage. I I think we way underestimate <laughs> uh, the importance of having a players on our team. I think uh, more often than not, uh, when you look at the people that are on your team, or if I look at the mistakes I've made in the past over the years uh, with people on my team, more often than not, they wound up on my team as a result of proximity. We, we have all heard the saying, proximity is power. And that's true. The The problem is if you let proximity become a substitute for the search. Hmm. And the search means, let me identify. The, what most of us do is most of us say, look, I, I, I know that I need some people, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to write down on a piece of paper, what are the skills and I'm, that, that I need this person to have. And most of our ads for new people that when we begin posting on Indeed, or we want to go to uh, LinkedIn and, and find some people to join our team. More often than not, we're focused on skills. And the reality is the only reason we want a certain set of skills is so that somebody can perform a certain set of tasks, and the only reason we want them to perform a certain set of tasks is so that they will produce certain outcomes. So the reality is, what I need to start with is outcomes, not skills. What are the deliverables that I want this new person to add or bring to the business, and in order to deliver on these outcomes, they're gonna have to perform certain tasks, and in order to perform these tasks, they're gonna have to have certain skills, but this, is what determines whether somebody gets an A or a B or a C. Not their skills, not the task, but whether or not they hit the outcomes. And so what you're describing with your team is getting extreme clarity around what are the outcomes and deliverables that I need from my team? Who do I need on my team? As A players, by the way, A players love to be measured. They love it. Think back to high school. Think back to junior high when, when you were in, I think back to my college days and there were there were some kids in my classes that made straight A's. I mean, mm-hmm. stra- you can think, I mean, you might've been one of those people. Made straight A's and straight A students' favorite day of the year is report card day. They skip, they skip to school. They, <laughs> they wake up in the morning and they're happy. Now report card day for me when I was a kid, That was the worst day of my life because I I, I, I knew that I was going to get my report card. I was going to bring it home. My dad was going to say, oh, son, you have more potential than this. You could do better. And he's right. I could have done better, but I had to hear the story. A players love to be measured. I'll say it like this. Anybody that doesn't want to be held accountable, uh, anybody that doesn't want to be measured, doesn't want to be held accountable. If you find people that don't want to be measured, you don't have an A player. So leverage is a key part of this owner hat that I think all of us should own and all of us need to go to that gym and start building those muscles. It's a muscle that gets built over time. It's not something that instantaneously happens. I think here's here's the
0: challenge everything you said, it's not earth shattering to people. They understand. Hire A players. A players like to be held accountable. A players look at the outcomes. We all know this. The challenge is that we look at that as the 57th domino. The idea of being the type of person who has. Do you have clarity on the outcomes for your role? Do you have clarity on the outcomes for the next five people that you need to hire? You probably just had a big question mark and silence go into your head. How do you think you get clarity on what those outcomes need to be? How do you think you get clarity on the questions you can ask those people so that they can self-discover the actions to achieve those outcomes? It all starts by working all the way back to the lead domino, having time to think and asking great questions.
2: A great question would be, am I an A player? <laughs> okay, right and now. if I'm not, where am I falling short? Do I have clarity on my deliverables, on my outcomes? And am I measuring and testing and achieving A player status? I think one of the hardest things to do in business is to hire and retain A players if you're a C player.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm. I'll say this a different way. You get what you tolerate. And what most people tolerate is mediocrity in themselves. They tolerate it in the, with their health, with their weight, with their money, with their performance, with their team. And it's one of the reasons I'm such a, a strong believer in in coaching and mentorship is because... You're going to want to write this down. It'll be the most important thing I say. Nothing can change until the unsaid is spoken. It's why we need people around us to tell us the truth. It's why we need people around us to offer us a mint. I can't smell my own breath. That is so annoying by the way wish I could just tell I need people I need people around me to offer me mints. I need people around me to smell my breath. The higher you go or the higher you want to go, the greater the requirement to have somebody around you to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. Because we're too good at creating justifications, uh, stories about why it looks the way it looks. And the reality is, it's because the unsaid hasn't been spoken.
0: Well, there you have it. Part one of the habit that cost $100 million to learn and why it was worth it. If you are interested in getting a copy of The Road Less Stupid, which we would strongly encourage you to do, you can go to anywhere books are sold audible.com you can go to Keith's website keys to the vault if you are an audible customer consider getting a copy on audible we know that it just launched and if you are not yet an audible customer you can sign up for a 30-day free trial and get the road less stupid for free all you have to do is go to audible.com slash one thing again that's audible.com slash one thing or text the word one thing to the number 500 500 and you can get your free 30-day trial With Audible, get a copy of The Road Less Stupid for free. Again, remember, we are going to turn this into a little bit of a contest. If you liked what you heard and would like to enter to win a chance to get a free signed copy of The Road Less Stupid, you can either, number one, leave us a review on your podcast player of choice, specifically referencing this episode and the one thing that you're going to do based on it. Or you can share this podcast episode on your social media platform of choice, including the hashtag the one thing, all spelled out just like the podcast. And at the end of the month, we will be announcing who the winner is specifically in the podcast episode that will air on July 9th. So thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. And if you are not yet subscribed, please click that subscribe button. We have part two of the habit that cost $100 million to learn and why it was worth it coming to you in the next few days.